Glad to see you. Glad you're here. I am uh, Pastor Drew. It's fun to see all of y'all. Hopefully there was a lively discussion, maybe about the question, maybe not. Uh, maybe you all agreed to just not share that you've ever been <laughs> wrong about something. Um, I, I have many of those. One of, a lot of my life uh, when I was little as a kid, I remember being uh, things my dad, I think about this often as a dad, things my dad was joking about, but I thought everything he said was true. And so many uh, things I thought were true about the world were not true because my dad was joking and then he walked away and then my mom had to clear it up. Um, I think about that a lot as a dad because it happens in my house a lot <laughs> that I go, what? Why would you think that? They say, because you told me. Uh, we're going to think about that today uh, in our passage in Romans about what does that look like to, to hear something and think that's true and then we base kind of what we do and, and the confidence we have in what we do on that, and that's really at the heart, uh, often for a lot of the things we're dealing with um, in our lives, for good or bad. Um, first, I want to start with, uh, in February, we've been just highlighting um, some black heroes we have in the church, and this is one that I think we've highlighted before, but uh, her story is so great, and I'm always, I feel like every year I, I read another story, and this year I actually was reading a story about Frederick Douglass, where he tells a story about some of his first times encountering her, so I just was excited to share. This is Sojourner Truth. Uh, she was an abolitionist and an activist for um, African-American civil rights and women's rights. Uh, you'll see her name pop into all sorts of historical moments in this time period in America. Um, and moments of like re reading history about Abraham Lincoln, and it pops in that she was one of the people in the room when he was discussing something. Uh, she has found her way in lots of places. It's really kind of fun. She was born Isabel Baumfrey um, and later gave her name, herself the name Sojourner Truth. She was born in 1797 in New York. She escaped. Uh, she was born into slavery and later escaped with her infant daughter uh, in 1826. And she is credited with being the first black woman to win a case against a white man when she fought to recover her son who had been taken from her uh, in 1828, which was a really big deal uh, that she won that. She uh, gave her, herself the name Sojourner Truth. Um, after she became convinced that God had called her uh, to leave the city and go into the countryside, she says, testifying to the hope that was in her. Her faith was a huge part of her motivator. Uh, uh, Jesus was often what she talked about as the, her example. And really, as we talk at Hope about the word overflow, she uh, was changed by this gospel. Uh, and um, we see that overflow into her. I'm going to share a story in a moment. You'll see a little bit of that overflow. Um, there's a memorial bust of her. Actually, there's statues all over the country that was revealed. There's one in, in 2009 um, at the Capitol. She's the first African-American woman to have a statue in the Capitol building. It's a pretty big deal. Um, she's, she's included in the Smithsonian Magazine's list of 100 most significant Americans of all time, uh, not of just 2009. Which is a pretty big deal. Uh, one that I'd encourage you to look up and read more about and understand more. There's multiple short documentaries and things about her. Um, she died on November 26, 1883, and they said about a thousand people attended her funeral in 1883. That's a pretty big deal, pretty incredible thing um, that when she was buried uh, in that cemetery. Now, there's a story about her that uh, actually really connects to what we're talking about today. It's a, a Pretty, pretty cool story. This story actually comes from Frederick Douglass, who was having um, a meeting where he was sharing about this issue of slavery. How, what, are we gonna, 
what are we going to do here? And had gotten to the point um, of describing this power of slavery and was it explaining how it was connected to the church, how the church, not all of the church, but some of the church was actually using scripture and saying, this says that it's okay for us. In fact, we even should enslave other people. They were using scripture and saying that this, this uh, is telling us the truth of this scripture is that this is okay that we're doing this. And he was describing how hard that was and difficult that was, and it was really making him lose faith in the church at all, maybe even understanding who God was and how they're going to go about this. And it was him rallying people to say, the church is not going to help us. Uh, we need to do this. And Sojourner Truth was in that room as he said this, uh, and he describes that moment. So I'm going to read you the, just the moment here. While describing the power of slavery in the church and the state— in furtherance of my argument, sojourner in a distant part of the hall startled me. In fact, startled the whole audience with this question as she yelled out, is God dead? She yells out from the back of the room as he's explaining what they need to do to stop this. Sojourner Truth yells out from the back of the room, is God dead? Some sources, actually other accounts of the story say she yelled out, oh, is God gone then? Kind of a sarcastic tone. The suddenness and sharpness together with, uh, brought me for a moment to a complete halt. I had said nothing that called for such a question, but gave it a negative answer and went on my speech. I have never been able to see why such an incident should be so often referred to. Later, many people call that, there's people who even call that Frederick Douglass's Is God Dead speech, even though he didn't say it, because uh, they remember the moment that he's teaching and she yells out, Is God Dead? I've never been able to understand why it's often referred to. The effect of the question was much in a tone uh, in which it was asked. And the moment in my speech when it came, it has been said it was completely unrehearsed, not fit, Perhaps I was not, but as I remember my condition at the time, I was about as self-possessed as my audience was. We were all at that moment, though, at a standstill, just as we should be, as if someone had thrown a brick through the window. And you're like, what, what kind of happens there? Well, later there's more of this. She actually talks about this, too, and she shares often about how frustrated she would get as people move from believing that there's a God who actually is just and right and not the God that people were talking about who, who endorsed slavery, but there's a God that she says is the Jesus she read in her Bible. Actually, didn't even read it for a long time. She wasn't able to read, but she heard uh, stories of in her Bible. And in a moment when the, everyone gets really excited and is explaining what we're going to do and what we got to do. And actually says, we got to leave the church out of this because they're part of the problem. She says, does that mean God's dead? Is he not still a part of this? This is really a legacy for her. And I think a really, really good question in lots of moments in my life. I need Sojourner to yell from the back of my room, oh, does that mean Drew God's dead? He's not involved. He's not with you. He's not part of this. He isn't the one who ultimately will solve and change all these things. I need a sojourner to throw that brick through the window. And today's passage, Paul, I think, is, uh, is reminding us of how true this is in a lot of moments in our life and in our hearts. This same truth that we kind of get going and we say, well, we don't need this because we got this. Forgetting that there is a God who can change 
all things and has all things in his hands. And so we're in the book of Romans. We're going to keep rolling through this. We're in uh, our third section of Romans where we are talking, uh, specifically Paul is talking about the Jewish people and what has happened. Why does he not see his Jewish brothers and sisters and friends so involved in the church as the church here is starting? We have lots of resources we'd love for you to check out. You can check these on our app um, or website. And we're right in this section in Romans 9 through 11, where we've been talking about the Jewish people before, that God has been a faithful God, uh, that the plan hasn't failed, that he's always been the same God, as we looked at a lot of stories in the Old Testament, uh, leading up to this point where Paul is, and now he's going to start talking about what's the problem still right now with, with my people here. And he'll eventually talk about what does the future look like, the hopeful future. In the beginning of Romans 9, we get this question, but is it not as though the word of God has failed and the, the big question, right, did God's plan fail? Did he have a plan with the Jewish people and it didn't work out? And so he just sends Jesus to kind of back up plan. And Paul says, no, 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 this is not the plan. God has always been faithful and he's always had a plan to come rescue his people. And all these things he gave you to hold on to and represent uh, and, and raise up for his glory have been turned into things that you think you do to then make God do things. And in fact, Jesus, faith in Jesus is all. It is, we talk actually in this section of Romans, we talk about Israel and Israel. So we talk about the Israel, that's the ethnic uh, people group. And then we talk about the true promised spiritual Israel, which is the people who are the God's promised people, people God has called to himself. And these people are Gentile, non-Jewish people and Jewish people. And this is where we've been rolling in nine. As we end nine, we get to this place where we, he, he again brings up, why is this happening uh, and he reminds them is because they did not pursue this by faith in Christ, but instead by their works. And that Jesus becomes a stumbling block for them instead of a cornerstone for them. We get this great picture of Jesus building us up in First Peter uh, into this temple and all these things that the Jewish people wanted to be. And Jesus does that as our cornerstone. And instead, we like to do our own thing. We like it to be about us and about our <clears throat> works. And so we become self-righteous. It's about our righteousness, our rightness with God instead of Jesus. And we essentially build a little pile of rocks that does nothing but cause us to trip. So this is where we kind of are at right now. We're moving this thing of Paul's going to continue to talk. And he, he um, talks about another way, the same thing he's been talking about, of this, of this works righteousness, of being right with God from our works and the difference in being right because of Jesus' work. He looks at another way and like, how, how do we get here? And he brings something up that is so true um, that we already kind of started talking about. So true, though, uh, for us. And I'm excited to look at this today. This is our passage, just four verses today in Romans. I'm going to read them quick, and then we're going to walk through them today um, to remind us of this good news. This is Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is they may be saved. This is very similar to uh, the beginning of 9. He has this heart that wants to see them saved, rescued, salvation for these people. For I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is a passage that actually builds on itself, the language here builds on itself. It's sort of like this happens because this happens because this and these things all build to this thing. Um, and so if we look at it that way, it's he has this desire for them to be saved. <clears throat> and the reason this is happening is because they have a zeal for God, 
a passion, a confidence, a, a certainty that they're willing to go after for God, but it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to actually truth or what is, is true that we, they know about God. And he's already stated that just in the chapter before. Here's all these moments in their history that should have pointed them to this Jesus who's coming, the Savior is coming, and he comes, and they should go, here he is. And instead, over time, their, their uh, information here becomes, and the, the foundation of their truth and their belief becomes, we got to do all these things so that we can be special chosen people that God wants. And even when Jesus comes then, they reject him, and in fact, kill him rather than embrace him. So there's, there, there's zeal. Zeal isn't bad, but that goes... Uh, it's not based out of truth. What a, what a statement, right? For every day, all generations, and for us right now, how often do we see zeal without it being based in knowledge? And that there is connected to them being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They're unaware they don't know this thing. And maybe they've been even teaching something else to one another as they uh, grow old and have kids, and they keep teaching the same way to the rightness with God, making things right, is through how they do things, which is very similar to what they're seeing all around them in different ways. How do we appease gods and, and worship and sacrifice in certain ways? And really the issue is that Christ is the one who's come to bring an end to the law instead of the law being the way to God. So here, each little chunk here, we're going to take a second. So this is, what does it look like to have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Tim Keller says, Paul says that the reason for Israel's going astray is that zeal is not enough. The zeal must be based on knowledge. Zeal's actually not wrong. We hear about Paul being zealous before he, be, uh, before he becomes a Christian. Um, and then we also hear about him being zealous after he becomes a Christian, before different things, out of different things, right? This is a complete contradiction of a common proverb of our time. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere very true, right? It doesn't necessarily matter if that's true or not, as long as you're the most passionate. Have you experienced this maybe around you, that the person who's the most passionate or seems the most confident or maybe just the loudest, that becomes what's true. Um, Tim Keller gives this image, actually. He says, what if you imagine yourself giving your neighbor, who you love, flowers one day, hoping to bring them some love and kindness, unaware that they are seriously allergic to flowers. So allergic, in fact, these flowers end up killing your neighbor. Now your zeal for to love them and care for them and even give your own money to give the flowers was, was good, but you did not have the right knowledge. The zeal without knowledge could be fatal. That's what Paul wants us to understand here, that this zeal that we see uh, could be fatal. This is a, I mean, I feel like this is almost a way if you said, explain to me how social media works. Zeal without knowledge. Uh, the, the, right? There's this picture of this. This is how advertising works, right? Today's the Super Bowl of ads. And every ad's going to say in the most compelling, confident, exciting way, this thing, your life won't be the same without this food or without this internet service, or without this beer, or whatever it is, right? That essentially, there is zeal without knowledge. This is, we see over and over. We'll talk even more about what that looks like. 
He goes on then, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So the zeal, what does that look like? It's because they weren't establishing themselves in the truth of who God was. There seemed to be something else going on. They're establishing themselves. That's one of the things that Sojourner Truth was really passionate about. And people would say, don't you get scared as a black woman walking into situations where people, some of those people there are willing to even kill you, hurt you? Aren't you scared you'll go in and you're not smart enough? You haven't been educated enough uh, for a long time? You couldn't even read Sojourner. Why would you walk into a room and try to explain to people these important things and these, this justice that you think should be happening? And she would say things like this, I feel safe in the midst of my enemies for the truth is all powerful and will prevail. She believed there was a knowledge and a truth that was foundational to how things worked that she learned as she better understood who God was, as Jesus continued to teach her, and she, she continued in her zeal for God. She knew she was standing on a truth that was more powerful than the enemies around her and that it would prevail. Those are words we use to explain God, right? She knew the one with her was powerful and would prevail. Her zeal was out of a knowledge of truth, not a knowledge of uh, whatever was motivating people in their other zeal. This brings us right back to this, the passage we read before this uh, last week. Again, it's basing our, even our knowledge of what uh, then our excitement and our confidence and our movement where we go in life comes out of. Does it come out of a righteousness that comes from Jesus or righteousness from ourselves? We see this actually play out. As Paul says this, uh, if, if there had been people there who had either heard stories or experienced stories, I'm sure this was so close still to the time where there was people who actually were in crowds when Jesus was doing the things he was doing, may have experienced a moment that I, that, uh, that I think about often. It's a moment I think how silly uh, they were being, and then uh, it doesn't take long, and I go, i I find myself there. This is right after in John 6. John 6 is a story of how this happens, how zeal without knowledge looks. It's a story where Jesus and his disciples feed crowds of people. It's where they come and they say, it's, it's the, one of the few times where we see in, in the Gospels where the people all come and they say, well, they need to eat. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we don't, we don't have food. And then he like creates food for thousands of people. It's insane miracle. And the, and the people are fed and they often are, it says in scripture, they're, uh, they're f- like f- so full and satisfied. There's food left over. It's such an incredible picture of Jesus, this physical thing he's feeding us uh, that's given us this great picture. And then right after that, Jesus actually goes and rests. He prays. And then uh, they leave to go over the lake on the boat. And he, so he misses the boat. Not really, right? But he <laughs> is on the boat. So he, instead, of, he just walks to the boat on the water, right? So he just fed thousands of people unreal, right? That news had to go out. People had to say, you wouldn't believe this Jesus. He feeds everyone from nothing. This is crazy. This is unbelievable. And then right after that, he walks on water. Unbelievable. And then he finds some Jewish people, right? After this happens. Imagine what what would the conversation be that you'd have with Jesus after those things just, just happened. You're in the same hours that this has happened. The, the hum of all that's still happening. And it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Right, great. Like, what? <laughs> I walked on water. I just strolled over the seas. 
like people can't do. Only God can do. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he's saying, hey, you came to me because I just fed you a lot. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. We'll stop, stop there for a moment. He, so he's saying, you come because you want me to give you more food and give you more stuff. And he's saying, be careful because I, what I want for you is to be given the, the food that's forever. That that thing is, is incredible, but that's really just a picture of this bigger, truer reality. He wants them to have this knowledge, understanding that the Son of Man will give you something. He will give you something. For in him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. Okay, so what, what should we do then? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So he says, so what are we supposed to do then? We want that. And he says, you believe, you put faith in me as the one who will provide this. Later he goes on and says, I am the bread of life. That, th that moment that we just had, you thought, how cool this abundant feeding of a whole crowd. I will give that to you forever, in abundance, in, in your soul, in the foundation of who you are. And they say, so what do we need? Just believe that I'm the one. And they said to him, then, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You see this, this is what's happening here? I don't, I don't know if, I don't think Jesus maybe rolls his eyes, but in that moment you go, what? Were you just at the crowd where I fed everyone? Did you, I just walked across the ocean. And they go, well, show us that you're like, you're the guy. How many things does he have to do? There's a sense of like, but is there something else I can do to get this from you? Is there some, some other way I can find this? This is so built into, it's so woven in to, to like our, the fabric of who we are and the Jewish people and their, and culturally and their, uh, their foundation of what they believe and the same as what we believe. When Paul's writing these things, we don't just go, oh, those silly Jewish people back then. This is so part of my life. I say, I get it, I have to believe, but, but what do you really want me to do? And really show me, God, that you're really who you say you are. I want to know who you really are. Sojourner also shares this. Life is a hard battle anyway. If we laugh and sing a little as we fight the good fight of freedom, it makes us, it all go, go easier. I'll not allow my life's light to be determined by the darkness around me. Again, she's expressing, um, uh, someone actually asks her, like in the midst of some very hard things, I still see you and some of your friends singing and laughing. There's like joy still in you. And how does that work? And she's essentially explaining, right? Like, I'm not going to let the light go out in me just because of the hard things around me. And that's because of the source of that, right? So if she was one that just was gained joy in life from things around her, maybe like eating well, then that could go away if there wasn't good bread around but she has had her heart changed and her life changed. And so that darkness around her does not change what's happening in her. 
And then we get to the last part of this passage. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This word end here is translated in different translations as the culmination or the fulfillment. It doesn't mean the law is done. It means Christ has come and has finally the thing that the law has been pointing to has come. The thing that they've been working so hard for has come. We got a big quote from Douglas Moo, but I think it really helps us understand this. The law was never intended by God to be his final word. All along was <clears throat> it was anticipating something greater to come. Now that something greater has come, Christ, he is the telos of the law. That's the word there. The little Greek word has stimulated an amazing amount of discussion and debate. Does it mean end in the sense of termination or does it mean goal? Does Christ bring the law to an end or is he the inner meaning of the law? Perhaps the best way to answer this question is to go back to see the race imagery that Paul has been using in this context. So here in, a, even in the end of nine, he's talking about pursuit. He's using words that they would use in race language. Pursuing, running after. They're running after their works instead of Jesus and his works. We might picture this law as the race itself. Christ is the finish line. As Israel runs the race of the law, they should always, of course, have their eyes fixed on the finish line. Instead, Paul has been suggesting Israel concentrated so exclusively on the race that they forgot about the finish line. What a good picture, right? With the coming of, of Christ, that finish line has been reached, but Israel does not recognize it. Christ does end the law in the sense that his arrival means that the error of Torah is over. It prepared Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, righteousness is available to everyone who believes. So Christ has come. He's, he's finished the race. He's won the race. Now we look to him who has won the race, who's even pulling us through the race. You may, you may think of this passage because it sounds very much like this passage in Hebrews, a whole book that is written to Jewish people to explain to them how Christ is the one who fulfills all the things they love so dearly and, and hope that would get them to the fulfillment, to the be chosen people, to be God's holy children. All those things point to Jesus. And Hebrews, at, towards the end here, he, he starts listing all these great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. And then it gets, it says, all these people put faith in Jesus. They put faith in Jesus. They put faith in Jesus. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's, th let's throw off these things that entangle us, our works, our self-righteousness, and let's run the race that's marked out for us. And what does that race look like? It looks like fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has already finished the race. He's done what we all were trying to do. He has endured the cross in death, its shame from this, our sin, and he sat down now as he's risen from the grave at his throne. Finished. It's done. It's like he finished the race and he ran in and now he's sitting, waiting for us to run after him. It's done. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This passage fits so well with our passage today. And actually, I think the end of this passage is why, for myself, I've been thinking a lot this week, why I run after other zeal. 
why I'm so influenced by knowledge that's not true, right? That by, by false things or foolish things, because I often feel very weary, I feel like I'm losing heart, I feel like I'm unsure, I feel anxious or scared. I might not say that or show that, but I am there and I think, so what do I need to do to get out of this? What do I need to not feel weary and lose heart? What do I need to, to essentially get out of this brokenness? And so I, I, I grab onto something that feels true and that maybe somebody is very zealous about. Maybe someone's very confident about it. I think they seem like they have the thing or maybe I just muster that up in myself. And so I, actually this week, as I've been just processing this for myself, I found three places that I do this where I catch zeal that's not based on knowledge, on truth, on who God really is, but I find it in other places because I want to eliminate this weariness, this brokenness. Sometimes I find myself catching other people's zeal. Sometimes I muscle my own zeal and sometimes slithery lives of zeal come in and take, take me over. So we're just going to go through each one of these real quick. Kind of examples that I'm finding in myself, I think, as we think about where does it, what does it look like to live a life of zeal without knowledge? Essentially, this even could be a definition of, of uh, the beginning steps of even sinning, right? Of like a zealous moving towards pursuing something, confident in something that's not true. This one, I, I mentioned before, it might be easy to think of it social media. I think it's a, maybe an easy one to, to grab onto and you say, oh, I don't believe that stuff. It makes me think of how many times I watch a clip from a podcast uh, that's speaking very confidently. I think it's easier to dismiss one when they're like, what's up? And then they're getting excited. I'm like, okay, what are you selling me? But it gets sneaky in my life when someone just speaks confidently and then starts talking about stuff that I don't know anything about. And I think, oh, they must know something about. Thankfully, uh, there's people who are, are like parodying this. I found some this week, actually, of a guy who makes videos that aren't, that he's just mocking, kind of. It's a satire of what podcasts look like. Let's listen to it. I think it might help us get in the mood, feel this, okay? These, are, these aren't real, so don't believe the things you say. I think you'll know that. But think how sneaky this is that we catch this zeal without knowledge and it, and it changes who we think we are and what we do. Here's the secret to passive income, and this is something the banks don't want you to know. When you deposit $1,000 in a bank and you're making 2% interest, you're losing money, right? Because if you put $500 at two different banks you're doubling your interest. Think about that. Mm. This is what Chris and I have been talking about all week. If you're willing to go a step further, right? Because we're talking about passive income here, put $100 at 10 different banks. You're making 20%. No one bank is going to give you 20%, right? And this is usually where I lose people because they're not willing to do the work up front. <laughs> but imagine if you put $1 in a thousand different banks, the kind of returns you'd be getting. Oh, he's on to something, I think. You feel the confidence? You think, oh, how silly. As soon as I hear the word passive income, sometimes I, I stop watching. Uh, but, but think, you go, oh, that's kind of silly. It's not far, though, from what we love to see. There's one more. Let me show you one more. This one's about dinosaurs. So he's, he's got some info we don't, none of us know. Yep. Thank you, Chris, for resolving our audio issues. Can I blow your mind right now? Who buried the dinosaurs? Think about that. Because we only find dinosaur skeletons buried in the ground. But when you see the remains of an elephant, the bones are just sitting there on top of the earth, not buried underneath it. 
Okay, so let that sink in. As far as we know, and you can look this up, human beings are the only species that have burial rituals for their deceased. So who buried the dinosaur? Oh, the dinosaurs. Chris is leaving because I've been going on about this all morning. There's really only two options. One, dinosaurs are far more intelligent than we previously thought and were capable of empathy and required closure. Or, and this is the theory that's out there right now, there was a, let's just call it, race of beings who were larger than dinosaurs that felt the need to give them a proper burial. <laughs> I'm really into this right now. I think this is true. <laughs> I love I love how many times he said, you could check this out. Like, oh, I don't even need to check this out, I don't think. Uh, it's, it's funny, right? It's really funny because of how much we've maybe seen this same, like, rhetoric, the way he talks, the confidence he talks in. There's uh, so many little parts of it that are funny because of it, but also really funny because we love this. I, I, I mean, the, if you think how quick, there's certain podcasts that are very popular that if you just, the week they come out, by the end of the week, I know a lot of the things that were said in it because I just hear them in Friends. I have lunch with a friend. Did you know? Do you know dinosaurs buried themselves? <laughs> they needed closure. <laughs> Whoa, this changes everything. And then you, that, I don't know how much that information would change, but, but maybe going to a bank or a thousand banks to get 2,000% <laughs> interest. It, I mean, right, that's a very simple one, but how much does, do we see this confidence, new facts, Oh, I love feeling like I have secret knowledge that no one else has. I have a secret way to, to like fully be right and whole again that will solve these problems of weariness and brokenness. The fact that I don't feel very zealous about things, that I feel kind of vanilla or just tired. I think, wow, I, I wish I had what they had. It's, st it's still happening, right, within... Humans, within our flesh, we love this. Uh, God actually even warns us in Scripture to be careful of having this feeling like we have secret knowledge because the gospel is something that is for all people. I think that's one that I definitely have felt, that I catch this. How, how do I make myself aware of, like, is my foundation of how the world works, who I am and who God is, based on his word and what he said, or is it based on a convincing talk about <laughs> dinosaurs? Secondly, I feel that I muscle my own zeal sometimes. This comes out of a moment when I think, like, how, do I, how can I get this done? How can I solve this problem or fix this? How can I even just feel better? And maybe it's, uh, it's probably a combination, right, of things I've heard. But often I, in, in the moment, I have to kind of convince myself, give myself a confidence. For this, this is the moment of, like, standing in the mirror. And I'm like, Drew, you're awesome and your beard looks good and you got this. You got this. And I have to kind of chant to myself on the way into something, to a meeting. You got this, you got this, you got this, you got this. I have to muster up this forgetting like the foundational information that like God is with me and for me and loves me that even if this does not go well, that he has still loved me in such a way that he's willing to send his son to die and, and that I can have resurrection one day that death no longer holds me. But those huge, incredible truths that would change me, I, in the moment, often don't feel. I get to just muster up my own kind of false confidence. Um, sometimes not even. I really do convince myself of it. 
to points where you kind of have to convince yourself of it. I may hypothetically caught a kid stealing a donut this morning, and um, we'll say maybe. And uh, in the moment, in those three three seconds of uh, taking a donut, hey man, what are you doing? I'm not having to have a donut. Oh, oh, okay. And then and then like, okay, I do. But I really needed the donut. Hey, I needed this. Drew, I, Pastor Drew, I needed this donut. Like you could see in the moment, he went from like defensive to hiding to there's donut shame. And then, then like, you know what? No, I needed this. I need this, man. And I was like, whoa, but it's just, it's okay. It's just a donut. <laughs> you can see your eyes. It's okay. Why don't we sit down and have a bite? I won't tell anyone until the sermon and then I'll tell everyone. <laughs> I mean, I thought, oh, how silly. I'm walking away from him, and I think, I, all day. I do the same thing, all day. I, I, I feel that. I maybe feel ashamed. And I go, no, no, you know what? Dinosaurs did bury themselves, Drew. You're right. And, and you deserve this, and you should have this. Forgetting who I am because of who Christ is and forgetting who our God is, it's so important we know who our God is because it changes how we think about ourselves. And lastly, the one I've been thinking about, this is kind of a combination of these, but thinking all the way back to the garden. That moment when those slithery lies come in and there's such a confidence there. Does God really love you? Is he really for you? Seems like he's just keeping stuff from you. This is where, this is where I think get real deep down it changes, like really changes me. Because this uh, zeal without knowledge uh, changes me to, changes what I think about God and who God is, which essentially then changes I don't know who I am anymore. These are, these happen like all day. I think of as a parent moments that I, whether I'm told by my kid or I tell myself that I can't get my kid to behave or I can't, my kid isn't doing what I want them to do or Maybe just a, like a gross moment of I'm like, gosh, I, don't, I didn't want to say that to them in that way. How quickly in that moment lies come in of who I am and who God is and what God thinks about me. And I have to create now a system to like make myself a better parent and essentially a better person so God would love me. I think about this in a work review. Oh, I worked for a while at a hotel and work reviews were like brutal. They weren't reviews. It was just like, here's a list of things you're really bad at. And you'd go in there and you'd leave. And that would, I, I remember my manager would say, do you see this in other parts of your life? Are you really bad at this stuff in other parts of your life too? I think she was trying to help me think like, maybe you aren't. Could you apply those skills? And I would leave and just go like, I'm not only bad at working at hotels, I'm just bad at work. And those, they would creep in and I'd lose confidence and I'd grow quite weary and very quickly, I'd forget the foundational knowledge of who God is and what he has for me. And it changed me. Um, we've, we've been talking the last uh, while now here at Hope, but at our fall retreat especially, we talked about this thing we've been calling the gospel turn. It essentially is just thinking this way, right? Understanding who we are and who Jesus is. And when we're in a place where we're feeling zealous without knowledge or maybe feeling the effects of it around us, or feeling confident in things that we figure out aren't true, we can ask ourselves these questions. Just a reminder of this, it's, I think, a very helpful tool. 
These are the questions that God asks Adam and Eve right after they believe Satan, after those slithery lies that are confident change them and they decide to turn away from God. He asks these questions. Where are you right now? What are you feeling? Where are you at? What's going on? Where did you hear those things? What are you doing? I think how much this applies to this discussion. What are things that we're hearing that change how we think about ourselves or God? We are no longer believing truth, knowledge, and it's changing us. And so we find ourselves doing things because of what, who we, what we think about the world and us, because we have created those things and not learned them from who God is. And so then in that part, that moment, we decide now, like, how do we fix this? I think Jewish people, Israel saying, hey, we see brokenness around us. We see people not worshiping God. We find ourselves not doing that. So what do we do? We keep working hard at it to get better at it. Or the gospel turn is that we put our faith in Christ and that he does it. And that actually changes us. It actually flips the whole passage on its head. So we start with understanding Christ is the end of the law and faith in him is what saves us. And then that changes. Now I know the foundational truth of all things, this good, good news, this gospel. And that now changes me to be someone who's now zealous for Jesus and Christ and who God is. And that now changes me not to be someone who has, is, is work self-righteous, but someone who's Jesus righteous. And we start asking ourselves, who's Jesus? What has he done? So a simple idea of what that looks like. And think about what that looks like here in Hebrews 12 as we end our time. Uh, I'm going to have the worship team come up so we can start singing together. And when we're people who find ourselves weary and losing heart, think how this works in this gospel turn. I'm, I'm weary. I've lost heart. I, I don't know who I am. I think I'm broken and maybe unfixable or I'm really awesome and better than everyone else. Either way, right? What's the, what's the solution to that? It's not run harder, get better running shoes, figure out a better system, train better. The solution is look to, your, look to Jesus, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who's already finished the race. Again, the answer is look to Jesus. He's already finished the race. When I feel weary and I lose heart, we say, how are we going to do this? We got to get a better plan. We got to work this out better. The start is not that. The start is asking the question that Sojourner asked a long time ago, is God dead? I gave the answers in case you're wondering. No, he's very alive and he's very with us and he's very much still in control and Jesus is very much still on his throne because he's finished the race. He's endured the suffering so that now we can run after him. It's really good news. We're gonna respond now to that good news uh, through singing and through communion. These are ways we do this every week together, right? This is why we gather to continue to remind ourselves this is what we're running after. Some questions to consider. Have you found eternal hunger satisfied in the bread of life? That moment when he's with those people and he says, you just enjoyed this meal. There's a much greater meal and it's me. Uh, we get to do that and that's something we get to do in communion. That's why he gave us communion. We break the bread and drink the wine reminding ourselves that he is the bread of life. Hopefully today is the day you get to do that. Where do you find yourself zealous, passionate, or confident? Consider, is, it, is that come out of a knowledge, a truth of who God is? Does it come out of because we've been in the word of God and around people who know the word of God and they've encouraged us in that? Maybe even what are those uh, people around you zealous for? How does that affect you and change that? And who, who needs to know that there's righteousness found in Jesus? That's really good news. Who needs to know it this week? Maybe who can you be praying for even?
We'd love for you to be able to take communion. It's out in the hallways. Uh, you don't have to be a member here. Uh, we just ask your follower of Jesus to uh, partake in that, to remember his body broken, his blood shed, so that we could have life. Um, there's also people that want to pray for you in the back of the room. They'd love to do that. Uh, there's also a way to give at the table or online. Let me pray for us as we keep moving here. Lord, um, wow, you have finished the race. How much of my day I think, i got to figure this out, and you have. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, discern well what these things are around us. That we discern well uh, confidence, uh, zealous people, and in our own hearts, the confidence, excitement we have for things and where that comes from. Father, as we are weary and broken and we're feeling like we're losing heart, uh, I pray you would lift our heads and help us look to you and run to you. I pray too for those around us that you would help us see each other uh, tripping and stumbling and you could help us uh, help one another, that you'd give us that vision to see each other and be able to grab each other and finish that race together. Thanks, Lord, for these people. And an opportunity now to sing words that remind us of how good you are and praise uh, that is glorifying to you. We pray that in your good name. Amen.